It's kind of amazing how rapidly a week can pass, and we're in Thursday morning already. And, uh, and I have really appreciated the attitude and the reverence of this student body here. And uh, this is a Bible school that is very carefully and reverently also administrated and superintended, and we are very thankful for that. And it's a, it is a blessing for us to be in this uh, way a, a, a little part of this beautiful Bible school that you have here, and I trust that you're enjoying it. I just feel that we should stand this morning and have a word of prayer. And Brother Ken back there, would you lead us in prayer this morning? Let's just uh, reverently ask the Lord to bless this service and this day and this class and, and uh, that God's will be done here, Brother Ken back there. This is several times now in this series this week I've been given titles that have words in them that are not found in the Bible. And we had that the very first night we were here and we have that again today. The word missions is not in the Bible. The word missionary is not there. These are words that we use and we, we understand what they mean. And there are, there are interesting words in the Bible that they do carry the meaning of what we're trying to say this morning. But I would just like you to uh, turn in your Bibles there to, to Mark chapter 1. And we'll just, just jump right into this because there's more material here than we'll ever be able to cover for today. And, and I have not been here in your morning sessions, so I don't know if the students give responses in this time period or if you're just listening to some speaker up front here. I don't know if you're asking questions. I don't know if you're answering questions. I don't know how that's being done in that morning session. How is it, Brother Ken? Are, are we supposed to speak to these people, or are there, are, there's going to be a little touch and go there? How, how are you doing that, Brother Ken? Just bring out a message, and then we go to open discussion in groups afterwards to discuss this. All right, so you'll have to do your discussion later. I might ask you a few questions that you might want to write down, or the facilitators might want to, and, and then you can discuss that later. Otherwise, I would have had you responding right here, but you do that later on in your next session. That's just good. But we're in Mark chapter 1 here, and we're going down to verse 38. This is an interesting verse because Jesus had been healing the day before, and uh, a lot of people had come there, and many people were, were helped. It says in verse 34 that many that were sick of divers diseases and cast out devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. So now the morning comes. And rising Jesus did, a great while before day he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. This is a very, very important verse. And Simon, who is Peter, and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. But I want you to notice now verse 38. That's where we're, that's where we're going. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also for there for came I forth. Into the Next Towns is the title of this message this morning. Into the Next Towns. And, and I'm using this phrase, into the next towns, and calling it a mandate for indigenous missions. Now, uh, I'll, I'll t try to teach you a few words this morning. We don't have a blackboard here or a whiteboard. But, uh, but you just use your head there a little bit, and you can write some things down. Indigenous missions... It's a term that is used pretty frequently in various mission texts that you read. Indigenous referring to the fact that in the local setting where, these, where the church is being planted or where the gospel is going forth, that there rises up in that setting a permanent congregation that is not dependent upon outside influence to keep it going. And there, there are local people involved, and there are local people responsible, and there are local funds provided, and this thing can, can, can move forward on its own without someone from outside needing to have a pipeline going there to uh, a umbilical cord or a, uh, or a uh, life-saving machine, in order, in order to, life support in order to keep it going. It's, it's locally done. And there is a better word than indigenous that applies to missions. And the word indigenous, all of you have heard that. If you've been in, in these kind of circles for the last five years, you certainly would have heard that word by now. But there is a better word, probably, 
Then in the word indigenous, it's the word autochthonous. Autochthonous. And that starts with the same way as your automobile does. A-U-T-O. Autochthonous. And it's, a, it's an interesting word in Greek. It's a Greek term. And the word means that auto is, is mean mobile itself. The, uh, it can handle by, uh, from its own automobile, not having a horse pull it. It pulls itself. It, it is, it's mobile by itself. It doesn't have to have a horse pulling it or some other kind of conveyance. It, uh, it, it moves forward by itself, which was a strange thing back in the time when Henry Ford got that going. Automobile, autochthonous, which means soil, same soil. And what that means is this, that the church that's indigenous is a church that rises up from the same soil. Now, if you go outside here, outside this church building, and, and look out there, and lo and behold, right in front of this church building, there was an orange tree. This thing was bright green and had great big oranges hanging on that tree, bright and, and orange, and some of them were still yellow. But here are these oranges on the tree. You know that that orange tree is not autochthonous because it does not come out of this soil. Out of the soil means out of the same soils where this thing comes, where this thing arises. That, uh, that orange tree out here is not autochthonous. Someone put that thing there and it, it, it won't live very long out there either. It's not going to last very long, not in weather like this. I will show you those oranges are going to freeze. That tree is not handle, it cannot handle a, 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 this kind of climate, and it's going to die. It is not autochthonous. It will not endure. If you go to Costa Rica, where we are, and lo and behold, there is a cherry tree Growing outside our house in Costa Rica, that's not a talk to us either, and it's not going to be there very long. Uh, that cherry tree needs a dormant season. It can't find one in Costa Rica. That tree is not going to make it. It is not a talk. It does not come from out of this soil. And so, a talk to this mission and a talk to this church is something that rises out of the soil of that place. And so, a mission. That's effective, a church plant that is effective should be autochthonous. It should be recognized as something that came up from right here. So these are some words that we'll just look, take a look at here, and I hope that that helps you understand some concepts there. But I am teaching this morning about a, a indigenous missions, and I want to go one step further and say that although I'm not against the use of the word missions, Obviously not, nor the word missionary. The purpose of this thing that we're doing is to establish churches. And, and I would have to ask that, that uh, we, we, we agree on that point. I'd have to urge us to agree on that. And because there are too many places around the world where there are missions, and those missions remain missions, and they're forever missions, and they never turn into a church. And that is, a, that, is, that is a sorry commentary on missions. A mission should turn into a church. There, there should be an effective local body assembly that is functioning as the body of Christ in that local setting. And we should do what we can to establish churches where we go. And though that might need to start as a mission outreach or a mission effort or a mission attempt to penetrate into these areas with, a, with the message of the gospel, yet there is and must be a church come out of that. And so I want you to know that that is the basis upon which I'm speaking this morning. We want to we see churches established there. Now, the Bible does use some interesting words. We have the words good, good tidings in the Bible, glad tidings in the Bible, good tidings, glad tidings, which is where we get our word Gospel, which is where we get our word evangelism. We have three Greek words from which we get evangelize, evangelism, and evangelist. In fact, the word evangelist is in your King James Version Bible one time. And that good news is that uh, it's that evangel. It's that Yeah, that's an interesting word. It's the same word which you have from the word angel there, you know. Uh, 
The one who brings these good tidings is an angel. And so we have evangelized, we have evangelism, and we have evangelists in, in, those, in those Greek words that we have there in the Bible. That, that is certainly biblical, that is right to do, and we must do that. And the gospel does that, and wherever it goes it does that. And so we want to do that. That is a, those are biblical terms. One of the weaknesses of missions is the fact that it usually depends upon workers from afar to keep the mission going. It depends upon funds from afar to keep the mission going. It depends upon administration from afar to keep it going. And as long as that happens, we're not going to have an autochthonous church. As long as that happens, we're not going to have an indigenous church. As long as that happens, we're not going to have a local assembly that came out of the soil where this church was planted. And so when we talk about an autochthonous church, or if you want to choose the word indigenous church, and, and I, don't like, I don't like to use this word self so often because self must be crucified, but in this particular case, you can understand what I mean. We can take the word self out of here, put the word auto in, and that would uh, maybe sound better, but it means the same thing in this case, a self Supporting church, independent and not dependent upon foreign funds. And one of the reasons why the Pentecostal people have done so well in, for example, Latin America as well as other places in the world, but especially in places like Brazil, one of the reasons why Pentecostals have done so well and even the Jehovah's Witnesses have done so well is that they do not, do not depend at all on anything outside of their local soil. They don't depend on outside people coming in. They don't depend on outside funds of any kind. Everything that they're doing is done locally there. And, and that is an extremely strong way for churches to establish themselves. They're self-supporting or auto-supporting. And the second point is that they are self-administrated. They don't have some mission board someplace else far, far away that's in charge of this thing. And I just was in a, a, a mission, a new mission. It's only through there for three years in the country of Belize just three, two weeks ago. And some of the young men from the congregation came to me and said, Brother Dale, we'd like to have a meeting with you. And here's what they said. They said, we, we don't know how this church is, how long it's going to last as long as people on a mission board from the states are trying to be responsible for what happens here and they can't even speak the language of the people that live here. They can't speak their language. They only come down here once a year. They don't know what's going on here, but they're administrating it. They're, they're telling us how to do this thing down here. That's, that's a serious problem. That is not a self-administrating situation. And, and that, that can really be a hindrance. And I don't think it's one bit wrong for someone far, far away to be interested and be putting input into, into a situation and be visiting and be contributing if that, if that would be the case. But not at the expense of the autochthonous church. Not taking the place of local brothers and sisters who come to Christ and form part of this brotherhood and have a contribution to make. And, and, and not, not in this way that we, uh, we keep bringing school teachers in from the states to run this school and keep on bringing in the mechanics from the state to fix these vehicles we got down here and keep on bringing preachers in from the states so we have the church, the church can keep on going. There is something seriously wrong with that. That is not autochthonous. That, 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 sounds, like a, that sounds like United, United Airlines to me or maybe American. Uh, it, 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 it sounds like something is wrong. And the third thing that a church like this will do is that it's self-perpetuating. And not only does this little local church here get started and grow and become, a, become an independent and a, 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 an autochthonous body, an autonomous body, but it also perpetuates itself. It rejuvenates what it needs to keep going within itself, and then it reaches out and starts other congregations elsewhere. And when that happens, we have something very, very beautiful established in foreign soil. That, that, is, that, that would be the goal then, and that's what I have in mind when I speak here this, this morning about missions. It's a, it's a concept I'd like you to have. And I want you to know there's nothing wrong with Barnabas to, to relocate in Antioch from Jerusalem. The amazing thing is that the apostles did it. 
The amazing thing is that with all that Jesus taught and for all the strength of the apostleship that was at Jerusalem, it's amazing that the worldwide vision for autochthonous churches was born in Antioch and not in Jerusalem. That's an amazing story. But if you read your Bible, you'll find that that's the way it was. It's interesting to me that when they found out that these Gentile people were being evangelized over there in Antioch, the apostles sent Barnabas over there. And when he got there, it is amazing what the Bible says that happened when he reached that place. He was unknown to those people, and so it's a brand new situation for him. He appears there, and one of the first things he sees is that the grace of God is at work in Antioch. And I, if, you, if you would go, uh, if, if you would travel in time and, and find your feet deposited at a youth Bible school in Kelowna, Iowa, and the first thing you would see there is the grace of God in Kelowna, Iowa, in that youth Bible school. I'd like you to tell me what you'd be looking at. What did you see that you were able to see the grace of God in a Bible school in Kelowna, Iowa? And what did you see that you ended up in Antioch and you saw the grace of God in Antioch? What did you see? Not the orange tree. What did you see? It's an amazing thing to think about. That's what Barnabas saw when he got there. It's not wrong for that. But Barnabas had the wisdom to turn this group of believers here, these new Christians, and turn them into a church, and turn them into a talkless church, and turn them into a self-perpetuating church, and turn them into a church that heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, and turn them into a church that became a sending church. And it was a very, very beautiful story. And, 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 and it was then this church... It was this, this little fledging church. And there was this big Jerusalem down here. And they are the ones that, that instigated that Jerusalem conference, if you want to call it that, in chapter 15, where they discussed this whole matter of what does happen when the gospel goes to a Gentile group of people. And it was the little Antioch group that paved the way for that meeting in Jerusalem. And it was a, it's an amazing story there in your Bible. Well, I want to talk a little bit here. And I have several points this morning we want to look at very, very deeply. But would you turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Romans chapter 15. And I want to see here, show you something from Paul's own life. Where he had a view towards extension of the church, very similar to what our Lord Jesus had. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, I must go into the next towns also. And I want you to think about that phrase, into the next towns, as I'm reading these verses to you here. Now in Romans 15, verses 20 and 21. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that have not heard shall understand. Now, that is a powerful piece of scripture there. That is a powerful word of the Lord. If we would give the sense to that word, you would see the comparison between that and what Jesus said. All men seek for thee. But in that particular case, in Mark chapter 1, the only people seeking for Jesus there were the people that already heard about him, that already were aware of what kind of miraculous power was taking place and was evident, and they would like to be participating in it too. And so those that did get their tonsillitis taken care of yet were, were wanted, wanted to come there and get it done. But Jesus had a concern. He had a concern for the towns, the people, the people groups, call it whatever you want to, that have not had that opportunity yet. And he felt he must go there. Now you see the same thing here in Paul. Now go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 16. And here we're jumping into the middle of a sentence to read this verse by itself, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. You see the same thought here, beyond where we now are. Verse 
Now, how should this be done? <laughs> how do we go about doing this? I want to show you one more passage that's been already read in this Bible school this week. That would take you back to Romans chapter 10. And here I would like to ask a question that you can discuss later on then today. But in Romans 10, I'll read verses 13 through 15 here. This is a very, very beautiful gospel text, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Very, very beautiful here. But powerful verse. But now verse 14. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Now there are five steps here in these verses. I'd like you to name for me what the first step is. And you can do that to set, you can do that later on in your discussions. But there are five steps in those verses. And what is the first of those five steps? And for those five steps to happen, and for this result to take place, what's the first thing that must happen? You want to discuss that in your meeting. And then I want to show you another verse yet before we get started into this discussion. It's in Matthew 28. That's a passage of Scripture you know very well, and many of you could quote it without your Bibles open. But read here's verses 18 through 20, the last three verses of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That word power and authority is the same word. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, or always, even unto the end of the world. And it's interesting that the word teach is there twice, in verse 19 and verse 20, but in the Greek Bible it's not that way, nor in the Spanish Bible. Because here where your Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, the Spanish Bible says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that's what the Greek Bible says. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then when you do that, baptize them. And so you see what the purpose is here. We don't make a dichotomy between believers and disciples, like many of our evangelical friends do. They say, if you believe in Christ, you're a believer, so you're saved and you're going to heaven. And you can't do anything to unsave yourself. You'll be forever a Christian. But if you wanted to go deeper in your Christian life, then you become a disciple. That happens later. That, that's up to you if you want to really sell out and commit yourself and be surrendered and give the whole thing and forsake all and go the whole way with it, the whole nine yards, then you're a disciple. But that's not what this Bible is teaching us. You go out there and make disciples of men. And it's, it's a beautiful concept here. Make disciples of all men. So I want to focus on two points this morning and then end, if we have time, with a few practical considerations that I'd like you to keep in mind as you take the gospel to every creature, as you go into the next towns, as you go not to where Christ was already preached, but to other places. And so let's get started here. Into the next towns. The into the next town principle. What are we talking about here? That is to say that Somebody, if you're not going to do it, if these young people here at the Bible School at Cologne, Iowa in 2017 are not going to do it, then that's, that's, that's okay, they're not going to do it. But somebody must do it. You're, you're not going to do it, someone must do it. Somebody must take this gospel to the places where it has never gone. Jesus said, into the next towns. Paul said, where, where his name has not been named, where, this, where the message has not been given. Uh, I am con conscious of my responsibility to try to find those places. And if I would ask you, where are you going to take this gospel, to take it someplace where it has never been before, then where do you think you would go with it? And it is the, it is the tendency of churches. It is the tendency of missions to kind of uh, piggyback on top of work that's already been begun. And that's not all wrong. But somebody must take it where it's not been. Now, when you, when you study missions, and, and you, that's what we're studying right now, you learn that there is what has been called the 1040 window in this world of ours, which is that 
block of geography between the 10th and 40th degree north parallel, which contains the largest number of unreached peoples in the world. So if you look at your map, go to the equator, go above that to the 10th parallel, from the 10th to the 40th, and let that stretch from the Ural Mountains in Russia all the way across to the Pacific Ocean to the west. There you have the largest block of unreached people in the world. That's called a 1040 window. But there are 1040 windows at other places. And I'm just using that figure of speech 1040 because that's how, that, literally that's what it means. 10th, 40th parallel, north parallel. But there are 1040 windows in other places. For example, the country of Peru there are several 1040 windows in just the nation of Peru. Just, just, I don't know how much you know about Peru, but Peru is twice the size of Texas. The one half of Peru, one Texas, is the Andes Mountains. The other half, the other Texas, is the Amazon Basin. Two opposite pieces of geography. Absolutely and extremely contrasting. There are 1040 windows in both those places. There are places in those Andes Mountains where the gospel has never been preached. There are people groups up there and, and groups of Quechua people living there, those Incas, originally they were Incas, living up there without a gospel. Down the Amazon, it's also true, there's no one who has ever examined, studied, explored all the tributaries of the Amazon River. And there are new groups of people being discovered there all the time. And since we began our interest in Peru several years ago, Several different new, brand new groups have been discovered in that length of time. And there's still more than that down there. They found one group of people called a tribe, if you want to. This little tiny tribe, isolated, had 39 people in it. And these 39 people had their own language. These 39 people had their own little culture living back in there. They didn't know about uh, and they had never seen what you would call a white person. Nor had anyone ever found them. Imagine these groups of people living down here in these, these jungles. And it's so vast. It's, the, the geography is so big. And, 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 and the, the, that's a 1040 window there. People who have never heard. Now, you say to yourself... <laughs> That's way, way out there, and you know, I don't know how to ever get down into that place. And one of the things that happened there, maybe some of you remembered, I, I maybe shouldn't take time to tell these stories, but there's something that really impressed me was when the Bauer family, who were from the American Baptist Church, and they were serving there in that, in, in that Amazona, and they had a houseboat. And they were both born in the Amazon. Both of their parents, his parents, her name is Veronica, and his parents were, were missionaries there. And so these two people were, were born there in that Amazon situation, and then they got married. And now they have several children of their own. And they had this houseboat, and they go up down these tributaries of the Amazon to find these villages. That's what they're doing. And, and they adopted a child. And so they had taken a little airplane and flown out to the city, to get some paperwork done for this child, and we're flying back when a Peruvian Air Force jet was following this little Piper airplane, or this uh, Cessna airplane. And they had this idea that this plane was a drug plane, a drug war plane. And so the uh, CIA from the United States was also in the air with this Peruvian jet. And the Peruvian jet says to the CIA that they're going to fire on this plane. And the CIA says, are you sure? Are you, do you know what you're talking about there? Are you, sure, are you sure that you have that thing identified? To make a long story short, they shot this plane out of the air. And the bullets that came from this plane and this jet that shot this little Cessna killed Ronnie, which is Veronica, the wife, and killed the little daughter that they had just gone to get paperwork for, and shot the pilot through his legs, so he was virtually unable to do anything to control this airplane. And the uh, husband and the other son 
We're inside this cab of this plane, and this plane started on fire. It's still in the air. And he tried to lay this plane on the Amazon River because he had floats on it. And when he tried to land, he couldn't land the plane right because he was crippled so badly with the shots. And so this plane flipped upside down. And the people there in their canoe, dugout canoes and things saw all this happening and came out there and rescued the people who were alive. And this plane was all black with fire inside. And uh, the pilot lived and so did the man and his son. The other two were gone. And so that's what they did to these people that were trying to work in a 1040 window. And someone must take their place. That's how I feel. And so you get this idea of the next town principle. And, and, and so that, that's far, far away. But I, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a 1040 window in Kelowna, Iowa. I, I wonder if there's somebody in the town of Kelowna City that doesn't know. If there's somebody in Sugar Creek, Ohio. If there's someone in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And there's a very good possibility the answer is yes. People that do not know. And though there are Christians all around and radio stations and who knows what and billboards and name the rest of it, never a clue. And I'm going to ask you another question here. And you can discuss this. But is there anyone here in this audience this big who has ever presented the gospel to someone who never heard it before? And I will tell you something. If you ever do that, you'll not be the same afterwards. To, to present the gospel to someone who never heard it, someone who, who sits there and listens to you, they listen to what you're saying. And you're able to speak their language, you're sp speaking a language that they understand, and they understand the words you're saying, and, and, and you have this Bible in your hand, and you read that thing out of the Bible, read that story, read that truth, explain to them what you're reading, and they're listening to you. And they've never heard it before in their lives. Did any of you ever do that? And you do need to do that. It should, it should be a desire in your heart to do that. To someone who does not know. It's okay to review it. And, and, make, and urge upon people that have heard before. To make decisions for Christ. That's right to do that. It's a tremendous thing to go into the next towns. That's the principle we're looking at here. Going to the unreached places today is far more difficult than it was to do in Paul's time. You might not have thought about that. But the unreached places of the world are unreached for a good reason. If there's a place somewhere, a 1040 window, that, that has unreached people in it, there's a reason why they are unreached. It is more difficult than it was then. For him... There was only one empire. For him, there were Roman roads. For him, there was one language, basically. Although I think Paul probably spoke at least three different languages that we know of. He, could only, he, could, he only needed basically one language to reach those people that he was traveling to from place to place where he was going. He needed no passport. He needed no visas. He did not have any Immigration problems to get into these countries where he was going. And wherever he went, including to Rome, there was already a dispersion of Jewish people in, throughout that whole region. And so there were synagogues set up. And he could just go to those synagogues, even in Gentile towns, and start there and then reach out to the people that were around him. It's not that way today. Not at all is it that way today. In fact, we have a phenomenon just in the last 15 years, or maybe less time than that, countries even like Costa Rica are just about virtually shut. The door is just about shut for anyone coming into the country that's not part of that residency, not part of that citizenship. And many countries are doing that, just kind of locking down and saying no. And because of the economic pressures of our time and because of the political in insecurities that are going on, some of these countries are really locked down. And so it's more difficult to get into some countries today than it would have been 15 years ago, 20 years ago. In our country, Costa Rica is very, very difficult. 
But the only way to get into Costa Rica is to marry somebody that's a Costa Rican. That's about the only way to get in. And so the unreached people groups remain ignorant of the gospel for several reasons. And so I will give these to you. One is the, the fact that they live in too remote or too isolated a place to either reach them. It's, it's hard to get there. And if you could reach them, it might be very, very difficult to live there. And there's a dear family there from North Carolina. Uh, I was urging them to go to Vilie, Peru. And that's in the Andina. That's in there in that 1040 window. And they, they finally went down there for a three-month uh, introduction to what's going on there. Three months, you know, to become acquainted. And during that time, the husband of the family nearly died. Here's what happens. You're, you're uh, up here in this altiplano. You're here in this high, this high plain. And this, this plain might be up there at about 11,000 feet or 12,000 feet. And so you have this... You have this uh, altitude problem, you have this oxygen problem, and so it's a tremendous sickness that you get because of that. You, you can't breathe right, so you have not enough oxygen to the brain, so you have all kinds of problems take place there, and there are headaches, and there's all kinds of sickness that can happen for that. So he was up here, and he was very sick. His wife was trying to nurse him back to health. She couldn't take him out of there. She couldn't take him back home. She couldn't get him out of the place he was in. Why not? Because to get out of there, look here at my hands. To get out of there, you have to climb that much higher yet, to get up here at 15 to 20,000 feet. To get out of here, to get back down to where there's a town or a city or an airport, to get the, the man back home to the States. And she knew if she takes him up over here, it's going, to be, it's going to be the end of it. So she has to get him back to health here because she can't take him up here. The problem's already bad enough here. So he was there for months. He survived. When he came back home, I had a meeting with him. In the state of South Carolina, I was preaching in South Carolina. He came down there with his family. We had a meeting together. He said, Dale, I don't think an American family can live in the Villiers, Peru. I'm trying to tell you one of the reasons why the unreached people groups are still unreached. It's, it, the tough stuff is in front of us. The easy stuff has been done, if I'm used that colloquial expression. The hard work is still in front of us. It takes young men like these here and young women with this kind of dedication. That's why we're speaking to you this morning. It, it takes David Brainerd's. It takes David Livingston's. It, it takes a tremendous intensity to reach these people these days. The easy things are done. I'll never forget a, a group of people, a large group of people from the states, many congregations, a lot of money to work with. They decided they were going to start a congregation in Nicaragua. And they came to me after they were getting this thing all set up, and they were all happy about what they found. They said, Dale, uh, we located a place, it's only 20 minutes from the airport. I thought to myself, lo siento mucho, pero no vas a ver. 20 minutes from the airport. You, you, you fellows are ready for more than that, aren't you? Where are the, where are the hands? Are you, are, you ready, are you ready to go deeper than that? Where are you fellas? 20 minutes from the airport. If you're going to go to Valencia, Peru, that's not 20 minutes from the airport. And so that's why it's unreached. We're talking about missions. We're talking about going where no one's. We're talking about the next towns. Well, that's just one consideration. There's another one. You have difficult tribal and tonal languages to deal with. Translation work remains undone in many of those places. We have all nations Bible translators up there at State College, Pennsylvania, trying to, uh, from an Anabaptist point of view, reach some of these places. And Wycliffe has done a tremendous job. Simon Cameron, an outstanding contribution. But not all of it's been done. There are groups out there that still have no Bible, still the, the language has never been written down. No one has ever sat there and listened long enough and picked up all those sounds and all those, all those vowels and all those consonants and all the tonality and put it into a, a written language. Someone must do that. And then we must learn that language. And then we must translate it into that language to the scriptures. And it's a, it's a big job to do. And that's one of the reasons why there are still unreached people groups. It has not been done. And then there are countries that are closed to immigration. 
And there are countries that are reluctant to admit Americans into their country. And there are countries that are completely hostile to Christian religion. I don't want you to even come there. I had the privilege to go to Cuba when many Americans could not have gone because we, we were looked at by the Cuban government as being Costa Ricans and not being Americans. And so I was able to get into Cuba and preach in Cuba. Today Cuba is easier to get into than it was back when I was there. But it's an amazing thing to preach the gospel in Cuba. But there are countries that are close to it. And then there are those <coughs> countries where there's persecution to be expected if you take the gospel there. And not very many Christians are ready for that. Not very many people are willing to say, well, that's fine. Uh, ISIS, be what you are. Here I am. I'm ready. And, and, and death is out there. And persecution is out there. And not everyone comes back home that goes. And many of our people have tended to be in missions at places and where, where things were a bit safer, you know. And so these unreached places are being unreached. And of course, there, we know this truth. We've already heard it this morning. Not all people groups have been discovered yet. No one has ever expo- explored, as I said before, all the tributaries of that river down there. If you would find a new tribe someplace, how would you begin to communicate the gospel to them? And so, uh, for, for example, in our situation, Spanish turns out to be just a bridge language that you have to learn first so that you can start in a country and then go into the, these remote areas and then learn the language that's there, whatever that language would happen to be. And then there are health issues. There are diseases. I think of the Grossturban, if you remember what that was. That was the Moravian missions down in the Caribbean Sea, and they had what they called the Great Dying. And they had 20-some people there in this, that they sent down in this boat. And they were working down there among these people, and every one of them died. And the people back home, at home at the Herrenhut, they did not know that that had happened. Because communication was not, you know, cell phone-wise like it is today. No one sent them an email. And so this thing was virtually all wiped out through disease. We need, to take, we need to take the message, though there are all these difficulties or not. I want you to be interested in the 1040 situations that are still in this world. So it is all the more costly, less promise of positive results, more risk involved. So our churches tend to look for a more user-friendly target group to preach to. But these next towns are still waiting for someone to go there. Well, there's a, I don't know how much more I should say here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions and then we'll go on to the next point. Would you consider a, Catholic, a country that's totally Catholic, like Costa Rica? Costa Rica has a state church government, one of the few countries in the world that still has that, at least in the Western Hemisphere, is a state church government in Costa Rica. The Catholic church and the government is one. Would you consider a Catholic church to be a 1040 situation? Or would you consider the Catholic church to be people that already know the gospel? I wonder what you would think about that. How would you answer that? You can discuss that an hour from now. How about if you were in a situation where there were colonies of old, alt-colony Russian Mennonites? Would you consider them to be a 1040 window? Or would you consider them to be people that are already evangelized and know the gospel? I wonder how you would look at that. We could ask, ask many questions of that kind. Do we go to places like that? Into the next towns. I want to take you quickly to another theme. Go with me to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. To find a basis for this theme here and a very, very important theme in missions. That was the into the next towns principle. This one is different. Chapter 1 of Gospel of John verse 14. And the word, that's logos in Greek, the logos was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Logos was made flesh. That is to say there was an incarnation. That is to say that something that was glorious and eternal and invisible and only wise and perfect and infinite and majestic and eternal turned into a person. A Jewish person, born of a virgin, in a stable, in Bethlehem. And the glory of God, the express image of His person, the only wise God, our Savior, became a person in flesh and blood and grew up. And His neighbors saw Him. And He went to school with the other boys and girls. And He went to the temple when He was 12 years of age. This Word became flesh, this eternal glory of God, this Logos, this Word that goes forth from the mouth of God and does not return void, became flesh. This Word that is spoken and light is born and galaxies are formed and expansion between the earth and heaven. We call it skies, we call it seas, and we have water. We gather together in one place and this Word goes out and the holy things are done becomes flesh. And so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It becomes flesh. It became a person. And so we have here what we're calling the incarnation principle. And with this incarnation principle, applying it to missions, it means this. That for the gospel to be effective in the Andina and Peru, Christ Jesus must become a Quechua. In some way or another, we must take this gospel that we have and clothe it into the image and life and understanding of the Quechua people. Something that they recognize and understand and can relate to. Quechua. It's a powerful principle in missions. Something's a little bit hard for us to carry out. Very hard for us to carry it out. It's the concept of presenting the gospel to a new community or a new people group with the attempt to enter that setting as nearly as possible like the people that we are desiring to reach. And as Americans, this can be quite difficult. Our money, our cultural advancements, our education, our Americanisms, our democratic, independent sense of feeling and superiority all seriously hinder us from fitting into, blending with, becoming part of the society where we are going. It really hinders us. It's really strange, even in Costa Rica, which is not that diversely different from America as what some places of the world are, although there are very unique differences. It's interesting how that when people come to visit us from the States, they can, in the, an, an unconscious way, subconscious, maybe not even thinking about it, make remarks that actually make fun of the Costa Rican people and their lifestyle. And I'm sure that any of you that ever worked with missions have run, run into that. It's a, it's a very, very sad commentary upon us. But, but, but we are very, very far from the Word becoming flesh. We're very, very far from what Jesus did. When He came down there into in the, in the Jewish world and was born, of a, born under the law to a Jewish mama, And he did that. And the people saw this life grow up. And then they heard, began to hear him speak. And people were drawn to him. And some people hated him. But it's strange the people that hated him, those that didn't. It's, it's strange the effect. But he had access to the people's hearts. He, he earned it because of well, the way he chose to come here. And not only did Jesus come there that way, but if you would notice closely in your Bible, you'll see one more thing about the incarnation principle that makes it all the more hard, more the more difficult for us. And that is, not only did he come into the, that culture as a Jew, but he came in there on the lowest possible level. Did you hear that? He came into that culture in the lowest possible level. That's, there, was, there, was, there was holy design behind that. 
You know, we, we, we would tend to come into, into countries condescending. They're like, like we're putting this big jetliner, and we condescend in this parachute coming down here. The people see us coming, floated down. And we're down, 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 all the way down to these people. And the whole thing presents itself as greatness and accomplishment and achievement. And, and, and we're on a, on a level that they will never attain, never understand. We're, we're way, way, way beyond, beyond, above them. We come on down here. Jesus didn't do it that way. He came, in the, he came into the cult this way. Big difference. It's part of the incarnation principle. I, I want you to think about it. You know, this becomes worse yet if we don't have an indigenous vision. So the mission board comes down here, they buy property. Just listen to this story. They build houses, build homes for the people they're going to be sending down there. They build the school, they build a chapel. They bring in their vehicles, they bring in their personnel, they bring in their equipment. They set up a miniature America on the edge of the jungle somewhere. Everyone speaks English in there. The natives that are hired to help them to run all this machinery, keep all this going, they, they, should, they should be learning English too so we can communicate with them a little better. I, I see many examples of this, what I'm talking about in, in my travels. Jesus came in a very, very different way than what I just described to you. And it's not wrong to build a house. It's not wrong to have a piece of land there where you can plant some yucca. It's not wrong... To have a property. Those people where you're going have a little property too. It's not wrong for you to have one. Now, you and I cannot do as Christ did and in humility be born into a Quechua home, be born into a Quechua community. I can't take one of these young men up front here and, uh, you know, reduce them down to. Uh, a, a, a seven-pound baby and have them be born into a Quechua home. We can't do that. But what can we do? Just what can we do? You know, I just think of this, these Quechua homes where I've been, you know, that you're, there's a, that the house is made of stone and there's no heat in the house. It's extremely cold. It's high elevation. The people are wearing, the w women are wearing ten dresses they have skirts that go down to the floor. They have that felt hat on top of their heads. The children's cheeks are, are red, not from the sun necessarily, but that cold, that chap there with the direct sunlight because you're so high. The ultraviolet rays are tremendous. And so there, there's this uh, red, rashy appearance on all the faces, men, women, and children. The women and the men have chests like 55-gallon drums because their lungs are so big because of the lack of oxygen. And so they are hardy. They could do all kinds of things that we could not do if we would be there. They've got a little fire here on the dirt floor against the stone wall. A little fire is down here in the corner of the... Here's the wall. Here's the dirt floor. And right here in the, in the wall, there's a fire. And the cooking is done there. In that same room where the fire is, there are guinea pigs in there. The guinea pigs are the meat for the family, and the guinea pigs live in there. And we bring in the barley shoots and put them on the floor, and the guinea pigs come, come out unfriended a chair under a bench. And behind that bag of potatoes that's over there in the corner, the guinea pigs come running out, eat this barley. When they have it all eaten up, they run back in and hide again. And when the cook of the house needs to provide a meal, she picks one of the bigger ones up, and there's a lunch then going to be for dinner. Born into that home, you're wearing kites, not shoes. And you've got choclo growing out here in your chakra, which is a kind of corn that you have never seen. It's got the biggest kernels on the, that I ever looked at. And you sit on a bus or you sit there in the, waiting in the bus to the marketplace and you, you have a piece of cheese in this hand and the ear of corn in this hand. You pull off those great big kernels and eat them with cheese one at a time. Quechua. And become one of those. And I, that description could go on and go on for a long time. There are people that really have impressed me. Living at 12,000 feet with alpacas outside, 
wrapped up in a alpaca blanket. Born to a Quechua-speaking mother, we can't do that. But we should come as close to it as we can. This this entire issue, Paul hardly needed to face because the culture he went was basically the same from one place to another. It was all Roman. Greek first, then Roman. And so the the, the thing was prepared for him. But where we go, the cultures are vastly, vastly different. We have a hard job understanding each other. You know, as far as I know, where Paul went in the Gentile world, there were no mission compounds, there were no mission camels, there were no mission dollars, no mission workers that were replaced every two years, not where Paul went. The question is, how far should we take this principle? Do we totally adopt the culture, the dress, the food, the housing, the economics of this chosen target group where we go? I was teaching on this subject quite a few years ago, and a young man was sitting in the audience, just like you're sitting here right now. His name was Johnny Pinkham. He was sitting there, and then sometime later, Johnny Pinkham went and gave his life to the Tatumadas and the Sierra Madres of Mexico. Tatumada is a very interesting group of Indian national native people there. And he decided he's going to do everything like they do it. If they don't eat, he's not going to eat. If they have no heat, he's going to have no heat. And he nearly died. His father came to me later and said, Dale, it's your fault. You told him that when he goes there, he must do it like they do it. And that's what he's been doing, and now he's nearly dead. And, and we, have to, we have to understand that, that we're not prepared for that. We cannot live in every way like they do it, or we're not going to be able to take the gospel to them all. If, if you're dead, you know, that then your, miss, your, miss, your mission is finished. So there are some reasonable things we must consider there. And just to what extent we should take this principle of the incarnation you might want to discuss it in your relationships. Ben Sullivan was the same way. He went to the young Indians in Nicaragua. He was determined he would do everything like they did. I'm going to give you a, a little insight to what he did. Those people don't have clothing like we do, a lot of clothing. They, they have, they're wearing a shirt and a pants. They go down to the river. They take it off and wash it, put it back on, and come back home again. So what he did was he bought about five or six shirts and five or six pairs of trousers all the same. So if ever he changed clothing, they didn't know he changed it. It was the same thing he was wearing before. You understand me? And instead of him having some kind of a great big fancy, he knows what, uh, North Face backpack. <laughs> you got me? North Face, you know what that means? Just a real sharp looking outfit back here to trace tra- back into those jungles. He took a feed bag, put knots at the top, Bail ropes over his shoulders, tied to the back that back here, and had carried about 100 pounds of stuff in a feed bag, and had leaves under the ropes so they wouldn't tear into his shoulders too much. That's how he traveled into the Indian villages. And those people back there called him the first white Indian, and probably the first white person that ever learned the, the, the Mayangna language. But he was loved and accepted, and no one would keep Ben out of their villages. He was welcome anytime he wanted to come. That's how he came. Are you with me? In- incarnation principle. These young men ought to be thrilled with those kind of stories. You young men, your hearts ought to be in there doing that uh, as you're listening to this. You ought to be saying, I'm ready, I'm ready. When can we do it? When can we do it? Your hearts ought to be saying that. And some over here are the same. Ben was afraid. They'd never be able to find an American girl that would put up with the rigors and privations of that kind of living. And so, he married a young Indian that already knew how to live there. What do you think, girls? Would you have been willing? Would you have been willing? Listen, girls, would you have been willing? Well, this is it's time to quit. I need to leave, leave you with a couple of very practical points. Somebody came to me already and said, Dale, I'm planning to go to the mission field. Uh, what do I need to do in preparation for going? So you're listening here, aren't you, this morning? 
And I've heard that question many, many times. People ask me if they should go into medical schools. People ask me if they should get their, get their midwifery license. People have asked me if they should get a pilot license. People have asked me what kind of language study they should do before they go. People have asked me, they tell me if, if I have $100,000, would that be enough to get started in a new country? I've heard all those questions and many more besides. What do you do to prepare to be a missionary? And none, of those, none of those things are the answer. For as valuable as what some of those things might be, none of those things will make you a missionary. But I'll tell you one thing that will. I'll tell you the one thing that will permit you to put that bag on the back of your shoulder and walk through those jungles where there are no roads and where there are no bridges. You get to the water, you walk through the water. You have mud up to your knees. I was going to cross a log one time on one of those rivers back there in, in, the, in Musawas. And it's so muddy that everyone that went across that log just put another layer of mud on top of that log. And I have bad balance. So I was trying to go across this log, and uh, it was slippery, and there's mud on there. And I was almost across when this foot went on this side of the log, and this foot went on this side. And if you don't know what happened next, you can use your imagination. And, and I will assure you that things came up juicy and sloppy, and it was a mess and didn't feel very good either. But I will tell you one thing that will enable you to do that. And that is when your life is so surrendered to God and your heart is so broken that there's no such thing as murmuring, complaining, defending yourself, looking out for yourself, saving yourself. When you can accept anything that comes your way and thank God for it. And just, just accept it. Just put up with it. So the people looking at you and they've noticed this message you were preaching, they say, that person's real. That person is something we ought to listen to. That attitude, with no resistance to the issues of life, that yielded experience, that yielded heart, that is the missionary's qualification. The missionary's message is the word of God. The seed is the word. The logos, the word, was made flesh. And the life message must agree with the seed that we are sowing. And they will study your life, and they will study your marriage, they will study your home, they will study your business, they'll see how you do your things. And that message is so very, very important, your life message, but it's the word. So the word. You, can't, you, cannot, you can show them some pictures. You can do all, yes, but the seed must be sown, which is the word of God. You must get that into their hearts. The missionary's power is found in his prayer life. And we learn that from Jesus. What did Jesus do early in the morning? After all that victorious campaign with healing in the first chapter of Mark, what did Jesus do early the next morning? Where did the disciples know to, to find him? They, 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 they pretty well knew where, they could, where he would be in the early morning. And they went there and said, all people seek for thee. Listen, we're getting ready here. We must go to the next towns. Prayer life. Not only the time spent in prayer, although that's very important. Not only the time you spend in prayer and I, but the faith that wings that prayer to God. And I'll end with these two thoughts. Listen, young men, prayer is the arrow that is drawn on a bow fully bent. And the fully bent is you. And the fully bent is myself. Fully bowed, fully bent. You take a person that's completely rendido to God, completely surrendered to the Lord, completely yielded to His will, completely available to God with no resistance and no complaint. And if there's water, we drink it. If there's none, we do without. If we get soaking wet on the back of a truck, we get soaking wet in the back of a truck. If it's cold and there's no fire, we just try to form a huddle and wait until some heat, till the sun comes up. Bent. Fully bent. And the prayer that comes out of that kind of life, brothers and sisters, that is where the power is. The prayer that comes out of that kind of life 
And one more thing. Until we have prayed, there's really nothing else that we can do. In this life, or in the indigenous situation, in the next town, in the 1040 window, until we have prayed, there really is nothing more that we can do. May God bless this precious assembly in this Bible school this day.